Morning Glory and Evening Grace America. This is Hugh Hewitt from California to the rest of the country with a special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Originally taped for New Year's Eve and New Year's Day of the year 2001 and 2002, we play this whenever we think it's time to re-educate America. It's that time of the year when people make resolutions about what they're going to do in the year ahead, and often that is become better read or develop some wisdom. Well, I'm neither well-read nor wise, but I know a lot of people who are. And so today and tomorrow, and whenever we repeat these programs, we are going to endeavor to give you a complete education, or at least the introduction to one. That means if you'll just sit tight and stay with us for the next six hours of this broadcast program, you will emerge at the other end well-equipped for any conversation at any time, provided that you listen and learn. Who will be our Sherpa, our guide up the mountain of wisdom? Well, Dr. Larry Arn is the president of Hillsdale College. He has been so since the new millennium almost turned in the year 2000. He has his Ph.D. in modern history and political theory from Claremont Graduate School. He has been a research scholar at Oxford University where he assisted, well, perhaps the world's greatest historian, Dr. Martin Gilbert, in the researching of both modern history and the life of Churchill and many other credentials as well. He has written and lectured frequently across the United States on matters both obscure and wide, known, and he is now my guest in this walk down the path of sort of Western civilization and learning. Dr. Arn, welcome. Nice to talk to you, Hugh. Now, now, that's now qu- that you've become so famous. <laughs> that's quite an introduction. I hope you can live up to that introduction. Probably not. Now, tell us before we begin about Hillsdale College, because uh, people need to know what you are about every day and why I, I actually asked him to do this because of his captaincy of Hillsdale. Tell them about Hillsdale. Hillsdale is uh, a liberal arts college. It's the kind of thing where almost everybody used to get their higher education. It's a small place in southern Michigan. It was founded uh, 16 years before the Civil War by a bunch of patriot Christian scholars. Uh, they were very... Uh, Forma, uh, they, they came to the forefront of American life right away. Uh, the chairman of the first Republican National Convention in 1854 was a member of our faculty. We helped to found that party. Uh, we had more boys fight for the Union Army in the Civil War by a factor of two, as far as we can tell, than any college in America except West Point. Nearly all the boys went and fought in that war. I was just over at our library a few minutes ago, and we just bought a collection of papers. Uh, it's called the Kincaid Collection. One of our students uh, went off to fight in that war, and there's a big correspondence between him and various people here. Uh, he fought in three major actions, and he eventually died of a disease in a southern prisoner of war camp. And it's very touching, and I just spent 30 minutes reading those letters. It's an amazing thing. Now, I called you to help me with this project because I do believe a lot of people are now going to put down what they were doing and turn off the football games and listen. What did you think when I called you about this project? Uh, I thought it was crazy. Why? Well, um, it, uh, it's more important, in my opinion, it's, uh, this is an important part of the tradition of liberal education, to know a few things well than it is to know a large number of things. And I also believe that there are very few people who've ever been born who are capable of knowing a large number of things well. And we're going to talk about a large number of things. I'm going to talk about a couple of teachers of mine at the beginning, and I'll explain a little more why I think that. And most of the things that we're going to talk about, I know a little bit about. And, and uh, I'll try to be as accurate as I can. I have a kind of a framework for understanding most of those things, which comes from the things that I know a lot about. 
And so one thing I would say to the people who are listening to this is when you start your education or as you continue your education, excuse me, putting it that first way, as you continue your education, remember to focus on some things. Pick things that are high and noble. Uh, Pick great events or great people or great books and learn all about them. And you'll find that that's more valuable than getting a great sweep of things. And also it's possible to do, whereas getting a great sweep of things is extremely difficult to do and maybe impossible to do except for a few great minds. Now, getting a great sweep of things is not what we intend to do today, more of a taster's choice of what people might decide to go deep into. That's very different from promising them that they will know a lot of things at the end of this. That's indeed. Indeed. Let's begin with your teachers and why you asked me to begin with Harry Jaffa and Leo Strauss. Well, the greatest, the wisest man and the most learned man that I ever met is Harry Jaffa. He's a professor in Claremont. He's a professor emeritus now and a distinguished fellow of the Claremont Institute where I used to work. And he and Leo Strauss together and a few other students of Strauss, I think, uh, are heavily involved. They're vital to a recovery of knowledge that had been more or less effaced, uh, and that I think a recovery of that knowledge is underway now, and I think that it's vital to all kinds of things that have to do with our intellectual life and also with all the other parts of our life. Um, And I also believe this. I think that to learn, unless you're a very extraordinary man, you need a great teacher. And the, the Harry Jaffa is mine. Uh, I never met Leo Strauss. Leo Strauss was his teacher. Strauss was a man born in Germany, a Jew, in 1899. Uh, He fled Germany eventually when Hitler came in. He was part of the the, uh, educational system in Germany that produced Martin Heidegger, a very great man, and also a member of the Nazi party, and therefore also a very questionable man, but known for brilliant works of philosophy, mostly on the question of being. Um, Strauss came to a kind of a rebellion against that, because what he came to think was that the modern world is dominated by two doctrines that are fatal to freedom and to uh, the pursuit of truth. The first one is relativism, which is the doctrine that if a person thinks a thing is right, that is the source of its rightness, if there is any source. And the second one is historicism. And that is the idea that, that each age involves a kind of an evolution of the human consciousness and perspective. And the standards of right, of good action, tend to flow from the age. And th- this gives rise to all kinds of things, like the political movement that seeks to perfect the society. Uh, Hillary Clinton said one time famously, Our mission is to change what it means to be a human being in the 21st century. And it turns out that she said that at the University of Texas in the commencement address in June of 1993. And it turns out that that's a big project and takes a lot of government to complete it. Yes. And it also changes the nature of government because it has a different account of the nature of man in it. Uh, The government under this dispensation is not so much organized to respect our rights which rights come from our nature, which is a fixed thing, all of a sudden our nature is evolutionary. And we are the creatures who have the particular ability to get control of the process of evolution. But that turns out to mean, if you think for a minute, C.S. Lewis wrote 
brilliantly and famously about this. Um, that turns out to mean not so much that the human race is in control of physical nature around us, as it means that some human beings are in control of others. And, and so seeing all that, seeing all that unfold in part in the Nazi project, which was a form of this historicist utopianism, Leo Strauss rebelled against that. And he led a movement and prosecuted it brilliantly in his own life to turn to sort of say, we need to start over. Let's go back to the first thinkers. And those thinkers are to be found in the Bible and the prophets, and they are to be found in the first philosophers. And let's think again about who we are and what we are to do. He came up with a, an approach to philosophy that was a Socratic approach. It differed some from some of the earlier philosophers before Socrates, because as Cicero said of Socrates famously, he called philosophy down from the heavens and made it inquire into the things of men. In Strauss, you see an urgent investigation of the question, how should we live? What is the right thing to do for us? It's what he calls political philosophy. And Strauss is the father of a movement which involves a re-examination of the whole of modern philosophy by the method of going back to the classics. And Strauss was a very great man. His books, especially two books that I prefer among his books, but they're all really worth reading. Some of them are very difficult. Um, the book The City and Man uh, is a wonderful book. Um, and his book Natural Right and History, which in the paperback edition has on the cover uh, a, a, a picture of a section from the American Declaration of Independence. Uh, those two books are wonderful to read and fabulous introductions both to Strauss and to the problem of a thinking person in the modern world. We will come back to that problem, to Leo Strauss, to Harry Jaffa, and to our conversation as we introduce you to a sweeping grasp of Western civilization with Dr. Larry Arnn, president of Hillsdale College, on this, The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. On this special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show, I am joined by the president of Hillsdale College, Dr. Larry Arnn. When we went to break, we were talking about the political theorist Leo Strauss, a refugee from Germany who took up residence in the United States, wrote some wonderful books, invented a movement, or rediscovered a movement, and his student, Harry Jaffa, who turned out to have been the teacher of our guest, Dr. Arn, were about to embark upon a long walk through uh, the great thinking of Western civilization, but we're starting with these two men. Why Strauss? Because he rediscovered a tradition. And why Jaffa, Larry Arn? Well, Jaffa is is uh, one of the first students of, of Strauss, probably the first one who really became his lifelong student. And Jaffa, well, he's a very talented man, as I say. I never met Strauss, but Jaffa's the wisest man I ever met. And um, Jaffa turned to the study of America. And he is the man, above all, who has explained, in my opinion, how America fits in this tradition of the West and in this crisis in philosophy that has occurred in modern times. Jaffa is, is a, he's written two wonderful books on Abraham Lincoln. He's written a book on Aristotle, uh, or on Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, and he's written several books of essays that are fabulous to read, including especially one of my favorite things he ever wrote called Conditions of Freedom. Um, Jaffa is, is the foremost scholar alive on Abraham Lincoln, and on the meaning of Lincoln, and 
with him, you get into this interesting thing. Um, America begins with a proposition about the truth. America is a very unusual country. It has a birthday. Countries tend not to have birthdays, at least if they're old or great countries. Um, and the birthday is, is, uh, marks the celebration of a document, a, a document published to explain what the country means. Uh, we'll talk about this more if we actually make it far enough along to get to Thomas Jefferson. Um, we will. We will. We will. Hugh is, Hugh is determined. I have, determined a, I have a switch in my hand. You bet there we will. Go. So Jaffa began to try to figure that out, and he began it on the basis of an understanding of classical political philosophy and the difference between that and modern political philosophy, um, which difference he understands in a different light late in his life than he did early in his life. Um, I'm going to tell a quick story about him as another admonition to the listener uh, about what we're doing here. Jaffa, the first class I was ever in with him was in 1974, late in August, and it was on Aristotle's ethics. And he began the class those many years ago saying, uh, I can remember it almost verbatim, when a man gets to be an old man like me, of course he's still alive and thriving today, uh, he said, they begin to make the list of the hundred greatest books. He said, I believe that life is too short to read a hundred books. But I have a list of the three greatest books. And one of the books, he, and he held up, he said, this is one of them. He seemed to say after that that Plato's Republic was one of them. And then he became ambiguous, and it seemed like either the Bible or Shakespeare was the other one. But uh, he said, this book is a perfect book, he said. Meaning the a ethics. book that has a message for all time, Aristotle's ethics. Um, in thinking about the, about the Declaration of Independence, Jaffa wonders, what, what is the meaning of the proposition that there is a self-evident truth and that there are laws of nature and of nature's God? Where do those propositions uh, take their, their foundation? What is the meaning of those laws? How do we know what they are? What if somebody claims something is a self-evident truth and another person claims it's not so? Is it still self-evident? Is the ground of self-evidence consensus? Or is it something else? And, and Jaffa explains that as well as I have ever heard it explained. And many times I've heard it. I had to hear it many times before I could repeat it. Uh, as also bound up with it is an understanding of human reason and of the relationship between man and God on the one hand and man and beast on the other. Uh, it's a very famous thing in the founding of America that the last letter that Thomas Jefferson ever wrote uh, is an explanation of the Declaration to a man named Roger Whiteman. And he says in that letter, Some men are not born with saddles on their backs, nor others booted and spurred by the grace of God to ride them. So that means that men are not like horses. And in the Declaration of itself, the name of God appears four times. Once is each branch of government, and once is the founder. And the distinction between uh, man and God is the distinction of superior and inferior. And that is also the distinction between man and beast, with man being the superior. Man is the middle being, and because he's the middle being, he's entitled to a certain kind of government. Government that respects his rights, and government that uh, that proceeds according to his consent. If you think about that for a minute, that's a recovery of the idea of nature that emerges 
during the course of classical political philosophy. And Jaffa's achievement, among many others, is to show how that has operated to make our country so successful and so just and so great. Now, I want to ask you, Dr. Arne, the, the key thing here before we launch on all these thinkers, you've just talked about teachers, Strauss and Jaffa, is how do they teach? What, what was it about them that made you able to get a little bit, if not more? Well, Jaffa, Jaffa, of course, I didn't study with Strauss, and I, I know that I've, I've read the notes, class notes of many of Strauss's classes. Strauss was a very organized lecturer. Uh, Jaffa was not at all like that. Uh, Jaffa would sometimes read out letters that he'd written to people and talk about how he's smarter than they are. And For some of his students, that would sometimes be frustrating. Um, Jaffa knows certain texts as well as anyone knows them, and on the occasions when he would go through them, it would be brilliant. And it would also always serve to remind him of some great thing that he would explain. Uh, he was at his very best when he was argued with. I mean, he still is. Uh, he likes to be argued with. He's famous for being polemical and for fighting with people all the time. He fights with his friends all the time. He fought with me many times over the years. Um, and, and, and I remember once, uh, there was this would happen a few times. We'd have a class at 3.30, and it was supposed to end at 5.30, and sometimes it would go till 7. And once it did, because um, this young woman in the class was whacking him about how all this stuff was just vague and meaningless, and, and uh, what did it matter whether you knew about all this stuff? And he started out by telling her a story from Plato's Republic about the Ring of Gyges. And he said, uh, imagine that you had a ring to put on. You know, the Lord of the Rings is opening, and in uh, um, theaters tonight, and this is this is has elements of the story in that wonderful series of books in that movie, which I hope is good. Um, and he says in there, he says, uh, "What if you had a ring to put on, and it would make you invisible, and you could go anywhere you wanted to go? You'd be very powerful. What would you do with that power? How should you use it?" And it became very compelling. And it took an hour, two hours. It kept going. And before it was over, he was explaining the difference between a man and a dog. And we were sitting there in a state of excitement, like I, I promise I've never been in, in a really great movie. And it was two hours and two and a half hours. And he was saying what it is to be able to reason and why that is a divine quality. We begin, what's different about that between what a man and a beast can do? We begin on that stuff, having now touched on why it's important. After the break, don't go anywhere. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and me, Hugh Hewitt, on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt on a special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. We are doing your New Year's resolution for you both today and tomorrow by introducing you in a fleeting fashion to the great thinkers of the West. Your re-education begins today. We're going to begin now with the oldest book in the Bible. I'm not sure whether it qualifies as the oldest book ever, but Job was penned first, at least according to most biblical scholars. Why bother with it? Larry Arn. Well, Job is an interesting book of the Bible, and I'll just talk about some of the problems it raises. It's a very remarkable story. It begins with a conversation, conversation between God and the devil. That's, a, that's an odd thing to happen. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a negotiation between them. And, a, and the devil is taunting God a little bit. It's kind of like they, you know, they converse, and uh, it, it, that's not exactly the relationship between God and the devil that goes on in 
other books of the Bible, which it goes on most extensively in this book. Um, uh, Satan says to God, here's this fellow, you know, and you think he's really great, and he's a very good man, but of course you've given him everything. So why don't you take it away and see if he's really good? And that raises a problem. That problem runs, if you just abstract from the fact that this is a divine account, uh, that is a problem that occurs in the first book of Plato's Republic, too, for example. It is the problem is, uh, what is the connection between virtue and reward? Um, Job is a just man, and he has flocks and a fine family, and he prospers and he's happy. But would he still be just if he didn't have those things? Uh, the argument begins in Plato, uh, justice is the interest of the stronger, says Thrasymachus, who's a man who makes argument, teaches people how to make arguments for hire, has himself an own, his own commercial stake in that argument. Um, the, the, the book, then, the action of the book is that God agrees with the devil to a test. And Job passes the first test, and then there's a second test. And the, and the second test is more severe, and it, it involves the death of Job's kindred, their destruction. It involves the destruction of his property and his home, and it, it involves ultimately personal affliction to him, disease and discomfort and soreness. And the question is always, will he still love you if, you, if, if he meets with evil? And of course, tempters come to Job in human person, Form of his friends, that's right. And encourage him to falsely confess his own sins. And Job, interestingly enough, won't do that. The specific thing that he's asked to do is to confess that he sinned when he is not. So this is a story about the vicissitudes of life and how they fit with God's providence. But why read it, since we are not often going to be the subject of a conversation between the devil and God, at least, that we know about? Well, we all have the problem of facing the vicissitudes of life. Um, things might go badly for us. And what about that? Um, how are we to react to that? Uh, how are we to understand those this, uh, the troubles when they come upon us? There's a New Testament account of those troubles, which is they are a trial to test us and prepare us for heaven, rather like uh, the Jewish people after they left Egypt were forced to wander in the desert, in part to get the slavishness out of them. So they'd be fit to occupy the, the promised land, uh, especially since occupying it ended up requiring fighting, which requires the virtue of courage. Well, we come then quickly to a, a central question. Vicissitudes of life, yes, but why not read any of the self-help books as opposed to Job? I mean, they are up to date on the science, at least. Well, the difference between the self-help books and Job, just to start with, is uh, Job has lasted, <laughs> and uh, they do not, uh, except insofar as they are reflective of the deep problem that's revealed in Job. And that is, are these troubles of life around us evidences that there is no God, and that there is no authority up to which we should look, and which we should obey, come what may? Life is a involves trials. The question is, what is our attitude to those trials? And in Job, we see the classic, the first statement of what that attitude should be. Job is uh, 
as good as a man can be. Because in answer to Thrasymachus' question, show me that virtue is better, even if virtue wins dishonor and trouble and vice wins reward and honor. Show me that virtue is better. Job is the man who says, yes, it is, and shows by his action that he believes it is. He is an early, the first, and an unrivaled representative of faithfulness to God. We return with the account of the beginning in Genesis on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt on a special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. I'm joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College in southern Michigan. He's leading us today and tomorrow through, well, Western thought. And now we must, uh, we must apply the switch, because in two segments we must reach through the Bible in Genesis and Exodus and cover both Genesis centrality and the stories of Abraham and Moses in 12 minutes. Begin, Dr. Arn. <laughs> why do we care about Genesis? I know why, but you tell us. Um, well, Genesis is the biblical story of the creation of the earth. Um, it's a very interesting story, of course. Uh, there are seven days. Uh, the culmination of creation is the sixth day in the creation of man. A man is the, the Lord of creation, to use an ancient phrase. Uh, he is uh, the, the highest thing in creation by the, by the Genesis account. And, and uh, um, he is, uh, it, it, the story begins with, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, there's a tradition that says that Moses is the teller of the story. And that tradition comes from two things. It comes from the fact that we're not told who tells the story, and the fact that it is said of Moses in Exodus that there is no prophet like Moses before Moses. So he would apparently be the man to whom things are revealed that no man can have witnessed. Um, the story of Genesis is the story of, of God um, giving rise, not begetting, but giving rise to the heavens and the earth, and then giving a command to the things that grow from the earth to grow, with some implication perhaps that this is to be a natural process. And and uh, and the story is, uh, um, you know, we are to understand ourselves as creatures, and creatures take something from their maker and have some obligation to their maker. Uh, the the position of Genesis is that we are made and that we are made in the image of God, and from that one may derive how we are to be. So it gives an account not only of our origin, but also of our end. And, uh, and it's not a philosophic account, it's a revealed account, but it is an account of everything. Um, so you have to read it for that reason. Now, in that book arises early after the creation account, the man Abram later renamed Abraham. You listed him on, on this list of 31 people we have to touch on, and I was surprised to see you specify Abraham. Why? Well, Abraham is a, in the story of the Bible, uh, Abraham is a, is a high watermark. Abraham is a, a very important man. I guess you'd say Noah was the high watermark, but... Huh. A joke. Um, okay. Sorry. Um, the, the story of, the, of Genesis begins with creation, and it proceeds to a state of perfection in which men lived and from which they fell by the intervention of Satan, who appears in the, in the, in the numerical order of the Bible first in this book. Um, and man falls. And the fall gives rise to two things. Uh, well, three things. It gives rise to the expulsion from the garden. It gives rise to the 
power uh, to to the to the flood, which is the destruction of everyone except the one just man remaining, who unlike uh, Abraham does not protest much about that. Abraham does protest when Sodom and Gomorrah are to be destroyed, uh, and then it gives rise after the flood to the first covenant, which is in Noah saying, "I won't do this again." But then it gives rise to the division of us into nations, because we all speak the same tongue, the Bible says, and we try to build a great tower to reach up to heaven, to reach to God, a rival God. And for that reason, we are divided into the nations. Now, Abraham constitutes for Jews the father of the Jewish people, and for Christians and others, he represents the claim that all are ultimately the people of God. And the specific thing I want to mention about Abraham is that God makes a covenant with Abraham twice. And the covenant is, I will make you a great people, and I will be your God, and that people, you and that people, will be my people, and I will give you a land to live in. And this shall be a blessing to all the peoples on the face of the earth. Yahweh in the Bible is the first of the gods, who proposes himself as the God of all of the peoples on the face of the earth, as the one God. And his choosing a people is a thing he does for that people, who through their history will be his representative, but he does it for the sake of us all. And that is apparent in Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, for example, where God makes the covenant in Genesis 17. It's not stated explicitly, but it's implicit there where he makes the covenant in those three places. And twice it says, and this shall be a blessing to all the peoples on the face of the earth. But that blessing is particularly worked out in the Genesis account and then through the first five books of the Bible, through the Jewish people, and especially through, as you noted, their leader Moses. Moses. Um, Moses, uh, in, the, in the Genesis and Exodus stories, Moses appears first in Exodus, um, uh, God's people have uh, taken possession of the land of Canaan, and they are living there under Jacob, renamed Israel. And he has 12 sons who give rise to the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of them is sold off to slavery in Egypt. And the effect of that is they all end up in Egypt, because there's a great famine. And he is sent there, it appears, in the providence of God, to preserve them through that famine. After Joseph dies, a very able man and a key, and a key counselor to the Pharaoh, the Jews become slaves. And the, the second great chapter after the forming of the Jewish people in their history is their exodus, ex hodos, that means uh, the road out. Hodos is the Greek word for road. Um, Moses is sent as a prophet to bring the people on the road out and to bring them the law. And the law is, of course, ultimately the Ten Commandments. And, and, and uh, Moses, uh, Churchill writes a beautiful essay, a funny and beautiful essay called Moses, which is good reading, in a book he wrote, he published called Thoughts and Adventures. And there he, uh, he once describes Moses going across the desert from his exile back to Egypt to organize the Jewish people at God's command to get out. And he says it was two women, an old man, and a donkey, and a man. A man, an old man, two women, and a donkey, if I remember right. The greatest expeditionary force in the history of man. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back and talk about the leader of that expeditionary force, Moses, with my guest, Dr. Larry Arn, on this special New Year's Eve and New Year's Day edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll continue, and by the end of these six hours, you will be happy. 
I think. Do it begun yourself. It is the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America, to this special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show, where my guest, Dr. Larry Arn, and I are walking through all of Western civilization. And this is the shortest segment. We'll deal with, well, perhaps the largest human in human history. That would be Moses. What do we need to re- at least cling to as a beginner about Moses, Dr. Arn? Um, born into a Jewish family, escaping a purge of the firstborn sons by uh, his being put in a basket and raised in the family of Pharaoh. Uh, raised, in other words, at the pinnacle of the world. Uh, discovering in his youth and glory, his connection to his real family, rebelling against the slavery, uh, against a particular incident of slavery, he kills an Egyptian oppressor, flees for his life across the desert, does his service to win his bride, uh, returns back as the voice of God, a reluctant voice of God, known as the stammerer. Um, He is the greatest of the prophets, uh, because he is the man who met God on Mount Sinai, having brought the people out of uh, the land of Pharaoh and received from God the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Uh, He was a man of massive strength, energy, faith, uh, reluctant to be a leader, but appointed by God so to be. And he is the, the, the man who brought to us the Ten Commandments which, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing that uh, the Supreme Court of the United States, when it sits on its bench and makes its ruling against prayer in schools, uh, is looking at a uh, mosaic or a carving in the wall of Moses holding the Ten Commandments. Hmm. And I think it's uh, handy and right that he's a reminder that uh, to them, if they would just look, that they ought not to do that foolishness. And who knows, because he's there one day, maybe they will stop. Because now, with one minute left in this first hour, Moses the lawgiver really is the tradition of lawgiving that we will then be spending a lot of time on, and it's really not been improved upon much. That's, uh, it's a very interesting thing that, of course, in the biblical perspective, the law is given. It is the uh, God is its source, and God reveals it to us. We don't think it up. We don't discover it by our unaided reason. It is carved in stone and carried down by a prophet and shown to us. And if we touch the ark in which it is born, we will die. It's, uh, it's uh, protected by the ultimate punishment, and it is enforced by that punishment, and the wielder of that punishment is God himself. And that's right. And, and, and it's an interesting thing that the source and the sanction for the law is a little different in in the Bible, and in a a uh, a uh, theocratic state, I hate that word, but I can't think of a better one right now, than it would be in, say, a free government like the United States of America, in a way. And in that way, we will break for this hour. We'll return, don't go anywhere, America, to the special edition with Dr. Larry Arnn at Hillsdale College and me, Hugh Hewitt, on The Hugh Hewitt Show. <laughs> 